Good morning. If you haven't yet, you can turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 3, uh, verse 1. The, uh, the book of Acts, of course, is um, the story of the birth of the church. And I'm sure that you will all remember um, in chapter 1 of this book that Luke, who we presume is the author in chapter 1, verse 1, he said, In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he'd given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So in Luke's first book, he wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach, and now he continues that story uh, through the apostles. So during his ministry on the earth, Christ gathered these men, these apostles, and he equipped them to do his work after his ascension. And that was always their purpose. That is why Jesus discipled them. When they met Christ, they were only looking for salvation. They were looking for the Messiah, but they didn't know these great tasks that they would be called upon by our Lord to do. But that is what the book of Acts is about. It's about these men and these tasks that they were called to do and the church that came out of it. It is a book about how these men who were especially, especially equipped for uh, by Christ for their task, how these men continued Christ's work on earth after his ascension, how the church was born. And you all have already seen, um, I would assume recently, how after Christ's ascension on the day of Pentecost, how God sent his Holy Spirit rushing upon these men, how they spoke in tongues, uh, and how Peter preached that marvelous sermon, uh, after which in chapter 241 says that 3,000 people, 3,000 people were baptized and saved, saved and how the uh, believers of the church at that time, those thousands of people, how they were devoting themselves to the teaching of the apostles and to fellowship and to prayer. And chapter 2, verse 43 says how many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. It says through the apostles these wonders and signs were being done and how, they, how the members of the church shared all things in common and how they were attending temple day by day, and they were sharing meals together, and that God was adding to their number day by day. So this is a beautiful and exciting time in Scripture and in the life of the church. It is this explosion of the church after the ascension of Christ. Things are, however, about to get slightly more complicated, slightly more tough for these men and women. The church... And the apostles in particular are about to be met with persecution, real persecution. They will be arrested. They will be brought before trial. They are going to be beaten, all because of what they were teaching and because of what they believed about Jesus. Now, this event in, in these 10 verses, uh, this event, this healing of this lame beggar, this is the event which kickstarts a series of, of events in the lives of Peter and John in particular, in lives of the apostles in particular, but in the life of the church. Uh, this event, this healing is going to cause them physical pain and physical anguish. Yet it is also going to provide them with a platform to preach this gospel to men in high places. It's going to give them an opportunity to have an even louder voice on behalf of the gospel and on behalf of the church. And even after their arrest, after their beating, uh, they are going to praise God. And they are going to uh, feel honored 
and proud just to have suffered on behalf of Christ. Let's read through our text one more time so it's fresh in our mind. In chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that's called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have, I have no silver and gold, but what I have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood up and began to walk and entered the temple with him, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, before we break down our text, I want to clarify something about this uh, business of healing, since that is what the miracle is that we see happen here. I want to get out ahead of it and maybe answer some questions you may have before we begin so that we have a healthy understanding of this miracle and why God did it and why the author of Acts put it here. Um, The gift of healing, uh, in the sense that we see it here, is an apostolic gift. What we see here happen in Acts chapter 3, 1 through 10 is an apostolic application of this gift. And there is unfortunately much confusion today, as there's always been, about many of the gifts of the Spirit, um, but in particular the gift of of healing. And many churches take this supernatural sign of healing and they make it into something that was not meant to be. And what really happens is that they end up glorifying the work itself. They end up glorifying the miracle itself rather than the God who has provided the means for the miracle. And Jesus, you remember, worked a myriad of miracles during his earthly ministry, many of which were healings of various kinds. But each time that he did it, each time that he did it, he used that miracle to accredit his own ministry. The miracle itself, the healing itself, was never the point. When Christ opened the eyes of of the blind, it was a sign that he could open the eyes of the spiritually blind. When he opened deaf ears, it was a sign that he could open the ears of the spiritually deaf. When he healed the skin of lepers, it was a sign that he could cure a man of sin. And when he raised the dead, it was a sign that he could provide everlasting life to the spiritually dead. The healing itself, the miracle itself, is always temporary. But the sign of the miracle, the lesson that is obtained from the miracle, from witnessing it, is eternal. And the bodies of those that are are being healed will eventually rot and die and decay again. But it's their souls which are being healed by the the sign. It's their souls that are being, being healed as a result of this sign. That is what matters most. And now, just as Jesus especially equipped the apostles to teach, he also especially equipped them to verify their teaching, as he did by the working of similar signs. Just as Jesus accredited his own ministry by certain miracles, so he also gave that that same capacity to the apostles. Only a couple chapters later, in Acts chapter 5, verse 12, Luke writes, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done by the people, or I'm sorry, were done among the people 
by the hands of the apostles. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, while Paul is writing to the uh, Corinthian church about his own verification of his apostleship, he says in verse 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with the utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So the gift of healing is a foundational apostolic gift. It was given to chosen men during a chosen time, both of which have now passed. In addition to that, every time that we see someone being healed by the apostles, you can note that it is always an unbeliever. Not one time do we have an account of the apostles holding a healing service where they are healing members of the church or anything like that. I'm not saying that didn't happen. I'm just saying it's not documented. Every time it's a new believer and every time it's done in an effort to verify the accompanying message that's coming with the act. And I believe that we need to be weary of folks who claim to have this apostolic gift in the way that these apostles did. Remember in Matthew chapter 7, Christ said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, went to the kingdom of heaven. And then he went on to say that on that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do my, many mighty works in your name? And Jesus says to them, I never knew you, depart from me. Now, that is not to say, that is not to say that God does not heal people miraculously today. I'm not saying that. Because he does. He absolutely 100% does that. He still performs miraculous, supernatural healings, but he does it through prayer. He does it through prayer. And I'm not going to restrict God to never instantaneously um, healing someone in our day because he is surely able to do that. However, I'm saying the normative pattern that we see here is one that is specific to the apostles when we talk about this instantaneous healing. And the pattern that is shown to us is a pattern of prayer. And if you've spent any amount of time in a, in a gospel church, then I am sure that you yourself can attest to the fact that God does perform these miracles. God does heal people like this, and he performs them for his people regularly. I can say personally that I have seen some serious, even fatal diagnoses to uh, members of my church, and then they have unexplainably became better. Doctors who literally cannot explain what has happened, and that is happening in our churches all the time. It is happening through prayer. It's happening through the laying on of hands. It's happening through anointing, things like that. So this gift of healing, this sign of healing, as we see it here in our text, was specific to the situation. It was given to the apostles to verify their message. And although it is possible today, hear me again, it is possible today, it is not normative. And it's not our job to seek to duplicate the miracle. It is our job to carry out the message of the miracle. And so with that background and that understanding of the biblical pattern of healing, I hope it'll be a little easier to understand exactly what is going on here and why Luke has recorded um, this event. Keep in mind, this sign of healing is patterned from the sign of the tongues in chapter 2. You remember, they spoke in tongues. The people gathered together because they saw this mighty work. Peter preached a sermon, and souls were saved, thousands of souls. And then here in chapter 3 and 4, we're going to see that a man is healed. The people are going to gather when they see this mighty work. Peter's going to preach again, and more souls are going to be saved. 
The same thing. It's a confirming miracle, a confirming sign. Let's look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Peter and John together once again. These guys are inseparable, and they have shared some very important experiences together. They were together at the tomb. They were together uh, on the Mount of Olives at the Olivet Discourse. And here again, they are together. They're going to temple together. And it's hard to see it in the English translation, but in the Greek, the verbiage is, in this first verse, indicates that Peter and John were going to the temple out of habit. That Peter and John were going there as a regular part of their schedule. It carries the notion that this was their custom, that they were going about their routine, which coincides with chapter 2, which says that the apostles were attending uh, temple together day by day. And it also coincides with the last verse in Luke's gospel which says that the apostles were continually in the temple blessing God. Now, there were three um, hours of prayer in the Jewish day, and this is the third. They're going up to the temple at 3 o'clock in the afternoon for the evening sacrifice and for the hour of prayer. And, uh, excuse me, we can imagine that the temple was quite crowded during this time. There would have been a lot of people coming and going from the temple, which is why they're about to bump into this man that they're going to bump into, this lame beggar. And the beggars in Scripture always seem to be in high-traffic areas. Uh, For instance, Lazarus in uh, Luke 16 sat outside the rich man's gate. You remember that blind Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10, he sat along the highway. And here, this lame beggar lies outside the beautiful gate directly outside the temple, which is really a good idea for him because he's trying to get as many donations as possible, and this was a high-traffic area. Not only that, but the people that are going to and from the temple would have been more inclined to give alms to him when he's sitting there. You've got guilty people who are going to temple who want to compensate for their sins by doing a good deed and giving alms, and you've got the pharisaical types who are going to temple and want to be seen doing their good deeds before men, and then you've got the honest-hearted people who are going to give to him out of a good heart. Uh, So he's really got himself in a good uh, spot, and that's why he goes there every day. And verse 2 says, Verse 2 says, And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. We'll find out later in chapter 4 that this man is actually 40 years old. He is 40 years old at this time. Lame from birth, relying on others, probably family, to carry him from uh, place to place just so that he can lay on the floor and beg. He did this every day. This was his habit. And even as we read this account right now, I'm sure you do as I do, feel bad for this man. Have pity on this man. This man's never been able to walk. They don't have the same kind of of services that we have in our society today. He was totally and completely reliant on his family, and if they didn't care for him, he would die. And the only way he has to make any income or to pay back his family and friends for their services to him, the only thing he can do is beg. And that's what he does. Laying on the side of the road, begging, unable to walk, 
completely dependent on others. But he makes it to the beautiful gate. And this gate, by the way, is rightly named. Apparently it was a sight to behold. It was 75 feet high. It was 60 feet wide. It was overlaid in Corinthian brass and gold. And apparently if you're standing on some of the many hilltops surrounding Jerusalem and the sun's just right, it is a a sight to behold. Verse 3 says that seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. He's asking for mercy in the form of cash, but he's He's about to receive grace in the form of healing and salvation. Now, let's look at the sign. There are a few things that should stand out to us about this miracle that's about to happen. The first thing is, it is unexpected, which is how God tends to do business. This miracle was unexpected. Ephesians 3.20 says he's able to do far abundantly more than we ask or think, right? And I found that to be true over and over again, and that's about to be true for this man. And verse 4 says, And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. Now, I'm not sure how many beggars Peter and John passed by on the way to the gate, but I'm sure that this man was not the only one. But for some reason, the Holy Spirit grabs Peter and John, grabs their attention when they see this man, and he focuses their attention on him. And thank God that they were so in tune, that they were in tune enough with the Holy Spirit to hear him, to hear him uh, telling them to stop. And verse 5 says, and he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. He must have thought, ooh, these guys are stopping for a minute. They've got, these guys have a good chunk of change for me today. Uh, but they do not. And in verse 6 says, uh, but Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, I don't think this is a setup by Peter and John. They probably, really, didn't have any money. Remember, these guys have been on the road with Jesus, traveling with Jesus for a few years now, and I'm sure they really did not have any excess to give this man. But what they did have was worth so much more. The miracle was unexpected. Surely this man never dreamed that this would happen. But that's how the sovereignty of God uh, works, isn't it? A man can be going along his own way, uh, clinging to money, clinging to personal gain, clinging to safety, uh, hope of success, and then God just reaches down into his heart and redeems him. And a miracle happens that he, that he never thought was possible. And I don't know about you, but I think that, that that pretty much explains how it is when you met Christ, when he reached into your heart and he transformed you from the inside out. And life became uh, fuller and more meaningful than you ever thought that it could be. And God replaced all those earthly things that you clung to uh, with the hope of eternal life. Also, they performed this miracle in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And remember, Christ is a title. They're saying, Jesus, the Messiah. In the name of Jesus, the Messiah, the one that came from Nazareth. And this is important because Peter and John are ensuring that there is no confusion about where the power inherent in this miracle is coming from, about where 
their power resides. And they're saying, because of who this Christ is, because of Jesus, because of who he is, because of what he has done, by virtue of his character and his power and authority, by that man, by that God-man, we command you to rise up and walk. And not only was this miracle unexpected, but it was instantaneous. Verse 7 says, and he took him by the right hand, and he raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. That's how God heals. He heals instantaneously. There was no natural process involved in this. Man didn't have creaky bones as he tried to get up. He didn't require any physical therapy to return how to walk again. This was a creative act by the only creative God. The power was Christ's, but Peter still had to lift him up. You see, God still used Peter to do this work. He still required some cooperation from Peter. And I wonder if we are always as available to be used by God as Peter and John were. Too often we go uh, to and from church and we go about our lives and we walk by, right by people whose lives are broken and, who we, and we don't even see them. I'm guilty of it too. We come to church, we plop ourselves down in the pew and we say hello to everybody and we sing some songs and we hear a, a nice sermon and, uh, and we go get lunch and we, haven't, we spend the whole day or the whole week and we haven't been sensitive to the needs of anybody that's around us. It's just routine. We're not like Peter and John. We're more like all these other people that are walking past this man and going to the temple. And there's people all around us, people inside our church walls and people outside of our church walls who have broken lives. They have broken hearts, people who are really hurting and suffering physically, mentally, emotionally. They are lame with fear and lame with doubt and defeat and trial. And they're searching for Love. They're searching for the love of Christ. They're searching for restoration. And they are desperately seeking for a Christian hand to help raise them up out of their circumstance. A representative from God who will just reach down and look at them and lift them up. Do you know who's around you and what they're going, going through? Do you care? Is there someone um, here or someone in your life that God wants you to minister to? Is there someone that the Holy Spirit has just been putting on your heart? Someone he's identified to you? Peter was sensitive to these things. He was sensitive to the proddings of the Holy Spirit. And he took the time to stop and to look upon this man and to extend his hand. Lastly, this miracle was complete. God never does a miracle that isn't total. Verse 8 says, And uh, leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and entered the temple with him, and walking and leaping and praising God. No painful, slow rising, no creaking or cracking of bones. He was up and moving. Uh, and I believe that God heals through medicine. God heals through doctors. I believe that he has given us all those tools as a means of grace. But this was different. This was supernatural. This was no slow recovery. This was a creative act. God took dead legs and made them alive is what happened. This was instantaneous. And this man was overwhelmed, as he ought to be. Can you imagine? Lame his entire life, 40 years, and suddenly he's jumping and leaping around. 
And as you'll see in the coming chapters, this man being lame was banned from the temple. He was, this was an unclean man. That's why he's laying outside. This man couldn't go in and worship with everybody else. And suddenly, he can. He was clean from his condition. He finally could leap and jump for joy, and not just because he had new legs, but because he can finally enter in for his first time in his life and worship with his brothers and sisters inside the temple. And I would imagine that this temple at the time, the third hour of prayer, is probably filled with quiet, somber, prayerful Jews who are saying their prayers quietly, going about their business. I'm sure it wasn't very loud. And in comes this man. In comes this, this man who was just outside and he's jumping up and down and he's leaping for joy and he's praising God and he's making a ruckus. And I'm sure that they were, they were shocked to see it. But God must have loved, God must have loved to see this man jumping up and down, leaping uh, for joy. Remember what John said, uh, when he, he, the reason that he wrote his gospel. The reason John wrote his gospel was so that our joy may be full. That is, our joy may be full because of what is, Christ has done for us. This man's joy was an appropriate reaction to his new life. Remember Paul says, rejoice always again. I say, rejoice. That's true worship. Joyful worship. That man was worshiping harder than anyone in that temple. Everyone else who was just performing a ritual. Everyone else was, uh, was just going about their, their business. But the true worship was the guy who was leaping around the place. You really want to worship God? Worship God with that kind of joy uh, in your heart. Look at verse 9. <clears throat> verse, verse 9 says, And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And there it is. This was a sign to those people. This was the purpose of the miracle, to catch the attention of all these people who were present. This was a sign that the Messianic age had come. It was a validation that Christ was still alive and that he was still working. And it was a fulfillment of prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 35, verse 6, Isaiah prophesied of the Messianic age, saying, Then shall lame men leap as a deer. When? In the day of Messiah. And here, this is proof. A lame man leaping all over the place. This was the purpose of the miracle, to produce this wonder in these people. And remember, this is only the beginning of what God is going to do with these men in this event. As you would see in the next chapters, God is going to use the commotion that this event has caused to get the attention of some very important people. And Peter and John are going to be called upon. They're going to be called to the carpet and questioned about what it is that they're doing and about how they are doing it. And God is going to give them a platform to proclaim the gospel. He's going to give them an opportunity to make it known who it is they serve and why they serve him. And they are not going to receive a warm welcome for this. They're going to get beat for it. They're going to be persecuted. And when it's over, they're going to say, that was worth it. They're going to count it all joy. 
they're going to be as happy about the beating as this man was about his new legs because souls are going to be saved. Not only is this sign a catalyst for Peter's upcoming sermon, but it is also a beautiful, beautiful picture of God's unlimited favor towards us. We, too, were lame from birth, stricken with the disease of sin, unable to walk, unable to live, clinging to worldly things for sustenance, barely surviving. And God came along, and he fixed his gaze upon us, undeserving sinners. And he called our attention. And he didn't make us rich with money or rich with possessions, but instead he made us rich with grace, rich with mercy. He cleansed us from our infirmity. He cleansed us of our disease of sin. And he took us by the hand and he stood us up. And in that moment, we realized that we are a new creation. And that we, for the first time, can truly walk in this world. Praise God for his glorious grace. Praise God for showing us such unmerited favor. And like the man in this story, we should be jumping for joy. We should be overcome by the joy that comes with saving faith, the joy that comes with knowing that the God of the universe has saved us, the joy that comes with being rescued from sin, the joy that comes with everlasting life. And also, if you feel that you've been uh, idle in your Christian life, if you've been self-centered, that you've been unaware of the people around you, start to look around. They are all around you. Keep your head on a swivel. There are hurting, lost people all around you. Ask the Holy Spirit to tune your heart so that you can see them. He will do it. He is faithful to do it. And when you find them, stop. Look at them. Fix your gaze upon them. Take interest in them. Not passively, but actually. Take interest in their life. And I know that we don't all feel equipped all the time to do that. But that's okay, because you may not have silver or gold. You may not have the cure to their ailment ailment or the uh, solution to whatever problem it is that they're dealing with, but you do have the gospel. You have the power of the gospel, and you can tell them about that gospel with the same power that Peter and John tapped into when they performed this miracle. You can still tell them, what Jesus has done for you and what Jesus has done for them, and you can still show them the great love of our Savior. And if, you, if you're here this morning and you are hurting or you are broken or you are struggling and you've never known Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I urge you to surrender your life to him this morning. It is worth it. The joy that follows salvation is even greater than the joy that we see in this man. It is indescribable joy just to know God and to be known by him and to rest in his promises. And if you're a believer and you've been walking past all of the lame beggars that God has placed along your route, I encourage you to slow down, to stop, You will not be able to help all of them. You will not be able to help all of them. And most likely, God has not called you to help all of them. But there may be one amongst the group. There may be one or two amongst the group. Ask the Holy Spirit 
to give you conviction when you see that person. Ask him to make it clear and then be on the lookout. Be on the lookout. When he does convict you, when he identifies that person to you, don't try and give them anything else. Give them the gospel. That is all that they require. Give them the gospel. Don't beat around the bush. Don't try and fulfill whatever it is that their worldly needs that they have, their physical needs. Just give them the gospel. By all means, do those things. But don't do it without sharing the gospel with them. That is what they need. God forbid that we help people's physical needs and their souls perish. God forbid. Share the gospel with them. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example that you have provided us in this text. And we thank you for the faithfulness that John and Peter showed and the bravery that they exhibited in fulfilling your mission on the earth. We pray that you would provide us with that same bravery, that you would give us the guts to step out into this world and to share the gospel with those who need to hear it. And we thank you, above all else, for your son Jesus. We thank you for coming down to earth and for paying the penalty for our sins so that we can dwell amongst you forever. It is our greatest privilege. And I ask your blessings on this body of believers here. And I ask that you would make them a church reflective of the church that we see here in Acts, that you would make them bold, that you would fill their congregation with the love of Christ until their cup is overflowing, and that you would add to them uh, day by day. And I ask all of these things in the powerful name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.